Welcome back, everyone, to the Spec and Collect podcast, the podcast all about M2G finance, technology, and entrepreneurship. I am one of your hosts, Zakiel, otherwise known as Merfolk Magic. And with me, as always, is our other host, Chris, otherwise known as Wolf of Tin Street. How have you been doing this week, Zakiel? Good, man. Good, good. Things are slowly moving. We're slowly making progress on the uh, my inventory system, which we'll talk a little bit about today. But yeah, how about yourself? Doing really good, honestly. I had somebody actually message me this week a really, really cool idea. And I'm definitely, I got their permission to give them a shout out, but I've been having so much fun with it. Uh, so I'd like, to, I'll probably talk about that during my data segment, but they just gave me, they had a really good idea and I just had the data to implement it. So I've been having a lot of fun playing with that this week. Cool. One special announcement is that this podcast is now available on YouTube. So whatever your preferred podcast platform is, you can find a video version of this audio. Uh, it'll just be audio with an overlay on YouTube under Merfolk Magic. You can also find this podcast in your favorite podcast player, Apple Music, Anchor, uh, pardon me, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, etc. Uh, if you look on our Twitter, you'll see the link tree for any additional links or just search Collect and Spec. That, I think that, that probably works, right? <laughs> I think I've got it everywhere. I think it's on most major podcast players, but uh, between here and YouTube, whatever you like, let us know. Leave a review as well on your favorite player, and we will hopefully see that. I don't know. (laughs) 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 But yeah, so as always, this episode is actually going to be a deep dive in our host series. I'm going to be interviewing Chris, and just we're going to have an entire episode dedicated to just learning a little bit more about him, how he got into the hobby, and so on and so forth. Before we get to that, as always, what are you working on this week? So this week, uh, somebody messaged me and their their user tag is Grapeshot20. I believe they're actually uh, an engineering student still. And they basically messaged me, they were looking at my newspaper and they were like, hey, you, you are spotting trends right now, basically, cards that are going down. I'm basically seeing when people are buying a card over time. And they said, why don't you actually look at the degree to which people are buying from you? So that was a really good idea because it's not only looking at the number of copies that are declining on the market, but so, for example, say somebody bought 1% of total inventory on TCG on Monday. On Tuesday, 3% disappears. On Wednesday, 5% disappears, etc. It would be really handy to, to be able to see that knowledge and see, all right, not only are people buying this card, but that demand is actually increasing versus declining, which gives you an even more refined avenue to kind of discover specs that you want to invest in versus ones that you might be curious about, but basically the ship has passed. And so basically, given the data that I have from the MTG sites, I was able to to borrow their idea uh, and basically just implement it into, into my data analysis. And I've been seeing some really cool Really cool stuff. I'll definitely get to that when I get to the, the card movement this week. But that has really been fascinating to see the, honestly, the success of that and the consistency with which you will see information pop up there about a week before it shows up on MTG stocks, which is always fun for me. Yeah, that sounds awesome, man. That is definitely a, I mean, a week before MTG stocks, I think most people in the community are kind of checking that daily to see what the trends are. But if you approach it from a programmatic perspective, you're obviously advantaged. I think everything you've done has just kind of been a testament to that, show how important technology is in this space. It's always nice to sell to the speculators because they buy 20 copies each. (laughs) 
this week I've been finishing up my inventory system. I'm trying to figure out what's the most optimal way to track cost of goods sold, track your sell price, how long you know your inventory has been sitting, all the really, really large inventory details. Mm -hmm. And while my overall system, it's, it's very simple. It's just a couple tables in SQL with a couple sort of procedures. It's going to essentially calculate, okay, we'll get date. This is This card was stamped in at X date. We sold it two weeks later. So obviously average age of inventory is 14 days or whatnot. But the last piece of equipment that I need is an RFID encoder, which is basically your printer will print the label, but you need an encoder to essentially stamp the radio frequency into each individual tag. There was an encoder online on eBay for like $700, I think about a month ago, that I got really greedy and lowballed the uh, seller. <laughs> and then it randomly sold after being on eBay for four months. So now I'm scrambling to find one and I'm probably gonna have to pay for it now. Probably over $1,000 for something that I should have just bought in the first place. So Hey, respect the hustle though. <laughs> <laughs> So big punished for, for being cheap. But all right, so our first topic with every week is Wolf's Weekly Data Insights. So Wolf, what are you seeing in the data? So a couple of things now, because I think as we're recording this, I think we've seen most of Jumpstart. And the cards that I kind of want to focus in on are the cards that people were kind of leaning into. But now, especially since uh, a couple of these have been crunched out, Basically, we saw kind of trepidation in the market. People were kind of betting on it, kind of hedging on it. And as soon as it was crunched out, we've basically seen the floodgates have opened and people have realized that a couple of these cards really do seem like good specs now. And the first one that I would mention would be the Resplendent Angel, which I believe is out of uh, Corset 2019, which is a mythic. It's the one and two white angel which produces angels if you gain, I believe, five or more life. But I believe since this kind of dodged that angel-themed set, this card has been seeing quite a good deal of low but consistent demand that's been picking up in the past couple of days as people kind of realize just how low this is in terms of supply on TCG. So just for context, I mean, we saw five days ago, 18 copies disappeared, four days ago, 13, another 16, another 10. So basically people are buying these in terms of like a couple of play sets each, each day, which doesn't sound like much, but when you add that up over a week, that's that's really going to add up. So this is just a card that I would watch, especially if you have one on hand. Might be a really good time to look into uh, moving those. Another one that I kind of like, I'm not sure if this one is crunched out. I just really like its price trajectory and that would be Imperial Recruiter out of A25. This is just kind of like, I don't know, an EDH, I don't want to say all-star, but this is just a card that if you can afford it, you want it. And this is a card that's just kind of draining five to six cards, five to six copies a day, which is considering that the old version is so hard to get, A25 is starting to get a little long in two. This is just one that I really think I'm going to be really scrutinizing it. And I'm kind of kicking myself for, for moving my copies, I think, a little too early. But assuming that this one doesn't get hit in double masters, which is obviously an ever-looming threat, I really like this card kind of moving forward. One that I'm not the biggest fan of is Debt of Loyalty. So I believe this one is supposedly, I think this one is reserveless. Do you know offhand? This is uh, out of Weatherlight. Uh, this is a one and two white regenerate target creature, gain control of that creature. Uh, instant speed 
I'm not sure why, but somebody thought they were going to be really, really smart and buy 50% of the copies on TCG. So if you see movement on this card, I would not trust it at all. This is somebody who's straight up, I mean, it, it's clear as day, they're trying to manipulate the cost of this card. And I think it's because it's reserveless. They just think, why not? What could go wrong? This is the kind of thing that can take you literal years to get out of profitably or to even break even. So just a heads up to don't get tricked by this one. If you see a price increase, this was definitely one person or one group that just decided, hey, we're just going to take a swing at the inventory because reserve list is all the rage right now. So just be wary of that one. Yeah. And I, it's interesting, just one quick note, it's really interesting to see how people approach the reserve list. I think many people want to get in on it and they'll often target the cheaper cards because oh, the, you know, these cheaper cards in the reserve list are something that I can afford or have some you know, little amount of expendable income that some people may have. Okay, we can target a couple cards like this for five bucks each and hope they go up to 10. But I think something else on top of all of the data of what's moving in and what's going out, there's a reason these cards are cheap, right? The reserve list has been intact for like 15 years. If this, If a lot of these cards, this goes back to the, not Great Whale. Great Whale actually saw some movement, but a lot of like the other really, really low-end cars that randomly get bought out. I feel as though it's people who are just trying to emotionally capitalize on what they can afford rather than approaching, you know, whatever their purchases are with logic, right? If you can buy one guy's cradle or 60 debt of loyalties, I would just rather have the cradle. Yeah, definitely agree. Uh, and I say this too, because this was a mistake. What you just described is exactly a mistake I made with, I think it was Zerillion of the Claw. Because it was a red dragon. And I was like, you know, red dragon on the reserve list, something that I could afford when I first started getting into MTG Finance. I still have 12 copies that I've had for over <laughs> two and a half years that are the same price. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I like it because you know, I'm a magic nerd. I think red dragons are cool, but that was not a wise financial move. <laughs> so, kind of skimming along to like a card of the week or at least movement this week uh, and this goes back to that methodology of checking out the demand slope of cards so i've heard jason alt talk about this a lot lately and he uses mtg stocks which again i i don't like that graph but i do really appreciate his analogy of the u-bend of a card in terms of the price goes down and then you want to buy at the low of the u and then it goes back up I would take that same kind of approach towards just uh, demand on cards. So if I see that, okay, 1% of cards has disappeared, 3%, 5%, you kind of want to get in at like a sweet spot, kind of just to borrow from that metaphor a little bit, because you want to get in at 5% if you think that demand is going to increase to 7, 9, 11. That way you basically gave yourself a safe period to see, is this demand sustained and real? And then do you think it's going to continue? So you, you're you not as greedy, so you don't buy it the first day, because that could just be a blip. That could be somebody buying it out. But when you see there's sustained demand, and not only sustained demand, but increasing demand over a couple days, now you can feel a little bit safer about buying in. Obviously, not. it could end right there. There's always risk involved. But this is just risk minimization tactics. And one card that, uh, actually, there's going to be two here, two cards that I've really noticed a lot of movement on and the last week in particular, the Palancron out of Urza's Legacy, going back to the reserve list. Unfortunately, I'm now going to tout a reserve list card after we just warn people out of it. Uh, and uh, Defense Grid out of Urza's Legacy. 
So to give you context, a week ago, on so a little over a week ago, actually, on June 13th, there were 129 copies on TCG of near mint LP quality. As of today, I believe there are 83. So over the course of one week, we saw, uh, I think it's something like 50 copies disappear off the market of a reserve list card uh, that I know definitely sees EDH play. I have a Palinkran. Anybody who's trying to run an unfair blue deck should probably, I guess, have Palinkran. I don't know. I'm not a player. Um, but it's a card that I know sees EDH play from what little play I actually do have. So I know there is that kind of backing there. It's not just buying a cheap reserve list card that you can afford. I think this one actually has a price tag for a reason. And I think it's kind of following in line with the Gilded Drake, Talarian Academy movement that we've seen. Academy Rector's been seeing a little movement as well. People, with all these reprints that are coming, a bit of a crude analogy, but I think people are just running home to mama in terms of running back to the safety of the reserve list because they're getting hit with all these reprints. So they're kind of running back to that, that bastion, that, that safety net of the reserve list. Whether it's smart to do so or not, I don't know, but it's clearly what people are doing. And so with Palinkrin, I say that we went from 129 to 86 over the course of a week. Now, if you are not measuring the day-to-day movement, you might say, all right, somebody just went in there and bought 50 copies and cleared them out. That's actually not what happened. Day-over-day changes. Basically, what we saw was starting on June 13th, we saw 1.5% of inventory disappear off TCG. Then the next day, we saw 2.3%. Then the next day, it was 5.5%. The next day, it was 6.7% then 11.5, and then 14% yesterday. That is a really enticing linear demand curve right there. And actually, the grape shot, she actually sent me uh, a picture of the graph on MTG stocks. You are now beginning to see the price go up. Now, if you are watching the data that I'm seeing, we could have seen this coming simply because seven days ago, we saw the demand profile for this card going up. The demand was clearly there. And now the price point stuck a little bit, but now that they've cleared out those low copies, anybody who's going to buy this card now is kind of inevitably pushing that price point up because the low hanging fruit has been cleared out and we are watching that acceleration. I will say today, which is June 21st, is the first day that we haven't seen an increase. So we didn't go above 14% demand today, but it's still going down. It's still declining. There's not enough supply to meet demand. And because it is a reserve list card, all of this is a lot of data vernacular. Hopefully I'm not making it too confusing, but this is just like my reasoning behind why Palinchron is a card that I I kind of, I actually bought a playset just to kind of hedge my bets. I just, I wanted to see if this worked and I'm really excited to see how this plays out. And in any case, it's clearly moving on the market. So I figured this would be a, a cheap, a, a nice little loophole for me to discuss this in here. Um, yeah. And then, no, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. It uh, it goes infinite with the new unicorn. Oh, well, there. So you exile, out, you blink it, and it untaps seven lands, and it only costs three mana to blink. Context helps, guys. <laughs> what is good? No, but I mean, on top of yeah. that, it's it's not just that. Like that just that is uh, a small reason why people got excited to purchase the card. But Palancron has been a commander staple and been trending upwards for like the past five years, right? So no, hundred percent agree. Yeah, and then the other one that I've kind of tagged on to, um, Urza's Legacy is going to be seeing a lot of love from me this week. Defense Grid, going by the same logic. I mean, we saw negative 2%. I guess I can't say negative, but we saw 2% decline, 5% decline, 7%, and then we saw 9% yesterday. And in terms of actual copies, both of these cards are now sub-100 copies on TCG. 
uh, which kind of gets raises my flags because I, I believe that's when cards start entering kind of a pressure zone. Uh, obviously, they are close enough to that 100 that they could pop back out if people start listing their copies again because they want to. Obviously, the marketplace is very dynamic in that if people see their cards are now worth more money than they put in, ideally, they will list them. But as it currently stands, these are two cards that are seeing consistent growing demand. And just from a data analyst perspective, this is so cool. Um, <laughs> uh, so this is these are just two cards that uh, I really appreciate the methodology behind because it was a very, I don't want to diminish the quality of the math behind it, but it was a very simple, simple equation. But there's honestly a kind of a sexiness to a very basic methodology and just applying it and then seeing good, consistent results. That's just very clean. I really like that. And, and that's really not only got me excited about just the card movement, but just the, the data underneath it as well. And then finally, uh, just to kind of point to a card that I really do think is going to go up in price simply because there's so few of it left on the market. I don't know. I don't even know. It, I guess it could be in Jumpstart. I don't know. Um, I don't even think this would be a double Masters card. But again, what do I know? Uh, and that would be Waste Not out of Commander 2015. This was the, uh, I believe this was like the community designed enchantment where when you discard, you get like a 2-2 zombie or uh, opponent discards. It has all these different effects. It's a 2 CMC, I think one color is one black, uh, mm -hmm. enchantment for black. And the, I believe it came out in a standard rotation set. And that, that copy is already really, really low. There's only 18 total listings. I'm not even looking at the quality of those copies. And that is basically a $15 card right now. TCG is going to show as $9.35 as market. That's not true. The shipping cost, I believe, on all of those copies puts it up around $15. And you're seeing uh, a similar trend on the Magic 2015. So these are just two cards. Keep your eye on. Uh, these are cards that are under a lot of pressure right now. They've already kind of increased in price. Again, I've discussed this before. The shipping cost is actually making it so that the TCG market price for these cards is not reliable. But these are cards that are more expensive than they seem, are continuing to decline in supply, and they just look like a solid place to put your money for the next 90 to 120 days. I like it. it sounds really good. Yeah, and then tripping into the next segment, how have... I'm going to just toss this over to you because I've been talking a lot. Uh, how have sales for you been this week, man? Not as good as last week. <laughs> I think I'm just under $1,000 this week. I don't have the exact number because I think my payments, my estimated future payments on TCG Player, I got merged together. but somewhere between five to six hundred dollars again really off the back of just a good amount of judge promos i'm slowly burning through the avison angel of hope i have a stack of like six of them right now i was able to source in europe for about 60 bucks each they're going for about a buck 20 oh. and then on top of that i went deep on a good amount of mystery booster stuff probably about a month ago your kiki jikis and scourge of the thrones and just buying them for under market value and slowly, you know, getting two or three bucks out of each of them. How about yourself? Similar boat. I got really lucky kind of guessing on the future with the, the Honden of the Infinite Rage uh, shrines, the red shrines, the foil one. I saw, I think it was the thing Morrow said about shrines coming back. And I didn't, I kind of figured it would be a reprint of the set. But I just figured, because I went to TCG and I saw that basically the foils for the red one, which I personally thought to be the best, just after reading them. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to pick up 20, 30 copies of these and just kind of let it ride. They were so cheap at the time. I think they were like a buck a piece. I was like, why not? Let's 
Let's see if I can get lucky, uh, which is a terrible approach to MTG Finance, by the way. But yeah, I still do it. <laughs> I try to practice what I preach, but I'm not perfect. It was, you know, it was just a fun kind of late night. Like, let's just see what happens. Uh, so sure enough, the, the new five-color shrine and the new set of shrines come out. And they were selling for about eight ninety five a piece there for a couple of days, and that that was really nice. That was a really nice um, risk reward experience. Now I just have to pray and hope that TCG Direct actually agrees with what a near mint foil is. But if that lines up, we're we're in good territory. And so then that, the other, are you, you're still mm-hmm. primarily on Direct. So are you are you going one hundred percent to Direct? What, what do you I mean guess like, by? Well, and I guess by that is like, are you so you're selling that? via or through direct as opposed to and, and and i'm just not as educated on how the platform differentiates between the two but of you so i guess in this scenario of you determining that you need someone out like tcg direct needs to verify that those cards are near mint foil cards yeah so we'll do a bit of a tangent here but it's a very i think important tangent when somebody is a direct seller on tcg tcg is fronting those cards so they're going to mail them out for me so then what happens is at the end of the week, I have to send in replacement copies to TCG. And TCG is infamous from a, a seller's perspective, famous from a buyer's perspective about how they grade near mint foils. And to rewind a little bit, what happens is if TCG has inventory for a card and you sell it, you, because you're already opted into TCG Direct, this is, this is what you've signed up for. They're going to send it out and you have to send in a replacement to them. That's just being part of direct. I can't really choose to be part of it mm-hmm. 40%. Um, what I could do is if I actually list my foil with pictures, then I have to send that exact copy. But that takes a lot of time for me to take pictures. TCG's website has room for improvement in terms of listing things with photos. But that is kind of like a sneaky way for direct sellers to get around TCG having to confirm their copy is near mint by their standards because the consumer saw the pictures. They agreed with me. We're good to go. But what usually happens is that TCG Direct is the harshest, 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 most like stringent grading for a near mint foil. If one of the graders hair falls on the card while they're looking at it <laughs> under the microscope, they will, first of all, they will send me that copy back saying, this is not near mint. This is LP. You are still on the hook for the card that we sold. So what they do is they go to TCG, they go on their own site, and they buy the next listed near mint copy of that card and charge me for it. Are you credited the price of the LP version? Or how does that, what what happens with that card? They just send it back to me. I see. Oh man, okay. And I will tell you this, you can, I will, I'm sure, get some shame for this, but I have Listed a card as near mint foil already, sent it in. They've said it's not near mint, sent it back to me. I've looked at it, I was like, this is flawless. I listed it again as near mint, it sold. I sent it back into them, and they said, yes, this is near mint. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, but they, they are extremely stringent. If you are a buyer and you want the mintiest of minty foils, switch it to TCG Direct because not only are they extremely stringent graders, any buyer who has the courage to list it at near mint they are kind of on the hook twofold here so if they are going to list a near mint foil as a tcg direct seller the buyer is saying they are taking the biggest risk they can and saying that this is a flawless card because not only the time the cost the it is the surest way to get a near mint foil i think in the game of magic right now so that was a fun tangent 
Yeah, no, well, yeah, thanks. I, I just was unaware. Yeah, that's uh, that's why what you'll see oftentimes when you go to cards that are in low supply, if you do the TCG Direct, you'll see that there are 18 TCG Direct sellers with an LP foil, zero with a near mint, because they're just that tired of dealing with them. They don't want to risk it. Yeah. So, yeah, just fun fact for you guys. The other card that I've been having a lot of success selling, I sold through about 16 copies. I was I was actually thrilled because I have a ton of Modern Horizon failed specs here. It was Echo of Aeons, and I've been selling through this one between 16 to 1750, which has been a really nice boon to me. But just it's just a good card, and it just seems to be selling well, at least from my sales end. And it kind of benefited that when TCG Direct reopened, Modern Horizons was one of the first sets that they reopened with. So I've just been seeing a lot of sustained success uh, and sales rate for that card over the past couple of weeks. Right on, man. Just out of curiosity, when you're sourcing new cards, right? If you say say you have $500 or $1,000 to look, at this moment in time, how would you spend that $500 to $1,000? Like, what are you doing in the week of, of you know, June, late, late June? We're looking right now to re- replenish inventory. What are you looking at? So... I I will not name sites simply because that would undermine my own refillment process. Uh, mm-hmm. But what I do is I like to look at peripheral sites around TCG, so like the local LGS sites. And I compare that first and foremost, uh, so I do a, a, a couple different methodologies. I compare what they're saying the retail price is with the buy list price. And if their retail price is obviously uh, more than $2 underneath the current buy list, I will I will buy up all their copies. That is, first, because it doesn't get safer than that. I don't care what the card is. I don't care what the spec. I don't care what the play pattern is. That is just the smallest risk I can take as a financial investment, mm-hmm. I think, in, in Magic right now. Another thing that I like to do, uh, obviously, I'm still pretty new to this. I think you have far greater experience with this but i'm definitely going to start trying to learn how to to get past a doggy paddle into like the breaststroke which is mcm the european card market is another site where you could actually walk backwards right now if you have the logistics chain set up to get you cards from there the united states market right now the demand is just exploding and for some i don't want to say for some reason the reasons are clear different global markets but magic card market right now is selling everything much, much, much lower than you can find on TCG. Obviously, mm-hmm. the average consumer can't get those cards because you, you really do need a, a, a logistical network set up to get those cards over here. But if you are able to have that and have that set up, that is an excellent, albeit it can be slightly delayed if you're doing in smaller orders and building up, which has been my experience. But as I'm finally getting a larger bankroll underneath me, that is rapidly turning into kind of my number one way. And then this week, I've actually been integrating, once again, that same methodology that I mentioned earlier into my process of saying, all right, I'm even willing to pay current retail price on this card. Obviously, if I can find it for cheaper, fine. But because I am able to see so clearly the demand profile and trend and history for this card, I finally feel brave enough to even risk taking that retail that retail price. And I am also somebody who I will never buy a card above buy list. I, we, I could do a rant or, or an instruction video, uh, but if you're trying to do MTG finance and you're trying to and you are buying a card above current buy list, either understand you're taking a very large risk or there are probably a lot better ways to go about it. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. I always just like to ask people who are in the hobby, you know, how would you how would you spend that money or what you're looking at? 
just this moment in time because as we've said many times before there are so many different ways to approach this hobby you can be profitable and in, in, you know from a hundred different kind of business strategies of strictly dealing in bulk or strictly dealing in sealed or high-end cards low-end cards you know everything in, in between so interesting i always just default to slivers just because it's the easiest i think they're the easiest cards to sell so if i'm ever on the spot i'm just always replenishing the first sliver and sliver legion and all these kind of cards from europe because like you're saying they're very much underpriced you can buy judge promo sliver legions right now for about 60 to 70 euros and they're going for like i think about 20 on tcg player uh, oh yeah, fun. Uh, so two two things real quick. First of all, I have noticed Horn Sliver, which is the green sliver that gives trample. Uh, I've actually been selling. I just sold, I think, four or five of those this morning. And every time I sell a sliver now, I'm like, I was a kid would be happy. Um, <laughs> but the other thing that I've done because a lot of my uh, replaced, like a lot of my methodology of finding these sites and these cards, I have it automated. I do a lot of work with web scraping, which just because I do MTG finance, I gotten much better or i've gotten good i guess at scraping sites. i was looking at a completely miscellaneous site yesterday i think it was eastern press books with my father you know just in, in for a father's day gift and i was like oh i could really scrape this website this would be really easy and i could look for the deals and i was like too much effort to stop it <laughs> but the other thing that i've done and i learned this from you is that i've actually really been trying to raise my want list above that ten dollar point because up until now i've been really operating off of I don't care what its price point is. If I can get it cheap, I want to get it cheap. But now that I know I can do that, I'm trying to kind of raise my buy-in to to kind of value my time more highly. And that is definitely something I've picked up from you. That it's still, you know, obviously I'm still experimenting with it, but it's one I'm definitely very excited to uh, see if that, if, see if I can do that. Hmm. No more 50 cent order in, in, or no more uh, yeah, 50 cent orders in with envelopes where the postage is more than the card but yeah <laughs> and well and the thing too is it's it's a nightmare because now that i've joined tcg direct so for my inventory sheet so tcg direct has a different fee structure than tcg but if i sell it on tcg currently and it's not tcg direct it's a different fee structure if i sell it on ebay different fee structure if i sell and all of these different fee structures tend to have different price points different cutoffs and Oh, my lord. And then when you get down to those lower cards and you realize that, sure, I sold them all and I made like 40 cents a card. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I learned slowly, but I get there. No, absolutely. One of the quick things I'm and, and we could do an entire episode on fees. We'll, we'll hold that conversation for a different time because and we talked about it before. There's so much to learn just navigating all of the websites, whether you're focusing on TCG Player or eBay. Even PayPal direct, you know, just direct uh, transactions for friends and family versus, I don't know, I guess just typical business transaction is, is an entirely different world. One other quick thing, as we see Jumpstart, I'm really focusing on, okay, we see that Crater Huff has been printed, Shieldred, the Ristic Studies of the World, Oracles, cards that are really, really high demand. The demand profile and what I've read about Jumpstart in the United States is that there's somewhat of a supply shortage that not everyone is getting their full allocation, which screams to me for a set that is basically rewarding EDH and commander players that this is European sourcing is going to be a killer on this, uh, especially people who are just cracking to flip. I don't, I anticipate being able to buy hubs really, really cheap, and I'm going to be in that the moment uh, everything pops up. I usually wait about like two to three weeks after release before going in, but 
like oracles are going to be able to sell all day. There's so many people who like these kinds of cards. It also opens up a lot of decks too. Like I would expect like Lord Windgrace to to see an uptick, if not like a spike, just because of like the different themed packs of these are gonna show players that oh, I really like this theme. What's a commander for this theme? Mm-hmm. And that's another one. Again, there's that's that's me again doing what I say not to do, but that's me pure speculation style, just trying to think like psychology. Like if I open up a pack and I really liked goblins, I mean, Perforos is gonna be front and center. Absolutely, 100%. The main topic of this week is going to be a deep dive on Wolf yourself. We want to know who you are. (laughs) So I think the best, we'll get into finance, we'll talk a little bit about education, a little bit about uh, kind of your your profession outside of magic, but take me back to the beginning. From what I've gathered, are you originally from San Antonio? Yeah, uh, yes, I am predominantly from South Texas, but to give a little fun backstory, I was born in North Carolina, and I've lived in Long Island, New York. I lived in upstate New York for a while. I lived in Sacramento. I've lived in Philly. I've lived in Omaha, Nebraska. I spent a couple summers down off St. Simons in Georgia. I I move around quite a bit. And was that, are you from a military family? No, actually, uh, both my parents are Canadian, technically, or the first stop mm-hmm for the first quote-unquote generation, but Canada doesn't count, generation, uh, my siblings and I, who were kind of born and raised in the USA here. Hmm. So but to get to the point, uh, my father always loved the Navy. He's a physician, and he actually thought he would he was going to join the U.S. Navy if he could in some capacity. Couldn't, but what he did end up doing was sending all three of his kids to a, a military school. Uh, so he, he kind of got halfway there, I guess. And from what what age is that entirely through primary school? So like kindergarten starting all the way through high school? That was uh, middle and high school. So from the age of 12 to 18. What was that experience like out of curiosity? If you were to describe it, I mean, obviously you've lived it, but if you were to describe the the differences between a military school to what you had previously, or I guess just another public school, how would you? Well, first and foremost, rifle range is a class. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, they, t- they taught us how to shoot, um, <laughs> which you can have qualms with all day long. But I mean, that that was a thing. You know, honestly, I I loved it. I mean, you know, you you, I guess hindsight might be rosy glass here, but I mean, it was it was a great experience for me. I don't I don't know in terms of differences. I mean, just it had a civilian element to it, so you didn't have to opt into the core segment. So I was actually in the core, which was the uh, JROTC for about four years, and then I actually opted out when I became a teenager because, hey, rebellion. <laughs> but I mean, you, you kind of just got used to, you know, 6.45 a.m., there was going to be revelry trumpets going on as they were doing the march, and then you didn't have detention, you had fun runs where you take a 20-pound rifle in the Texas heat while your sergeant major is underneath an umbrella drinking lemonade, watching you run around the track. I think that definitely taught me to behave a lot better than detentions did. oh man uh but i mean it was i say all this but it was honestly i thought it was a fun time i mean learn to like what you live in i guess so uh i don't think it was too different but definitely different from a lot of i guess what the average uh person going to to a public school would would experience no absolutely i has any what has stuck with you the most from that experience right do you are you still an early riser uh yes oh dear god yes my best work is always in the morning (laughs) 
come around like two or three p.m. I joke with my my colleagues. That's I call it the napping hour because uh, <laughs> all of my motivation to work just leaves. And you've mentioned this a couple of times. I know programmers are they like to stay up late. So coincidentally, what ends up happening to me is I'll be up till one two a.m. because I like to stay up late. But then I also I have to get up at like six a.m. Which means come about Friday, I'll fall asleep at like eight o'clock at night and I'll wake up at like 11 a.m. the next day. I'm fully aware it's not a healthy lifestyle, but it's totally what I do. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I love mornings. Uh, and then honestly, one of the biggest takeaway I think I got out of that, that schooling system was that you don't have to be smart to do well. You have to be organized and that organization and planning will trump raw intellect nine times out of 10. Uh, unless you're a true genius or you have both. And that is definitely something, I mean, I'm in love with spreadsheets for Pete's sake. That is definitely something that I've carried with me out of that. What's the, uh, what's the phrase that failure to plan is planning to fail? Yes. Yeah. Now I'm getting a bunch of flashbacks. So my, my dad was in the military, so I wasn't quite in military school, but I, I think the framework of kind of how we approached life and how I was yeah. <laughs> I made to approach life. Yeah. It was very, very similar. Okay, so then you go through middle or you go through military school as you get towards the end of high school, kind of figuring out what you want to do for the future. You know, what was that decision like when it came to choosing a college, choosing a major, thinking, you know, becoming an adult? Take me through that. So this is going to go back to failure plan is planning to fail. That was me at, at 17 and 18. I had no idea what I wanted to do, which is terrible. And honestly, it's it's kind of why I put so much effort into what I do now is because I understand that I was affectionately a late bloomer in figuring out what the heck I wanted to do. So when I went off to school, because my father is a physician, he's like, you can go to, he's like, you know, you're going to university. That's not an option. And if you don't have a plan, which I totally didn't, I was 17. I had no idea. And I had not put enough thought into it as I should have. He's like, we're going to send you to a college. You can kind of pick whatever major you want. Just go to college. So what I actually picked was to do biology on a pre-med track and try and lead into medicine, which of course is what every single freshman in college is going to do. Everybody's <laughs> going to be a doctor or a lawyer or, or an engineer. That's what everyone's going to be. But when I kind of started doing it, I also dual majored, which is really ironic to me because this is what every time I do an interview, everybody looks at my resume and goes, so I see you dual majored in classical languages. What, what's that all about? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, ancient Greek and Latin, I always had really, really strong professors. And I, I don't want to knock anyone here. I don't not always in terms of teaching, but in terms of just mentorship and, and just people who were very mature and were very good at just, I guess, mentoring uh, and helping uh, a very cocky teenage boy rules of the road a little bit. And uh, I had that in high school, actually one of my favorite teachers I still keep in touch with. And then into college, I just got lucky that that same thing transferred over. So while I was doing the pre-med track, I was also doing classical languages. And I realized I enjoyed doing classical languages way, way more than just straight writ memorization, copy paste kind of exercises. So when I finished my undergrad, I kind of realized, uh, and I was very thankful that my, my folks were, were willing to swing this with me. And I was like, I don't want to do med school. I would much rather go into business because 
When I went into college, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but after spending some time and figuring out what I actually liked about classical languages, which was that analytical ability of kind of unscrewing and kind of peeking inside, I thought that would have a much better application for business. Mm -hmm. And at the end of college, were you, I mean, I guess, what point in school did you kind of realize that? Was that early on? So you had said you declared bio and pre-med. Was that at the end, like at the fourth year, you're like, yeah, I don't really think this is for me. Or was that, was there a a specific event that changed that? Or was that gradual? So it was the end of my third year where, because I picked up classical languages my sophomore year. And then at the end of the third year, I had already started studying for the MCAT. I'd actually taken it a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And I was, I had actually, I had incredibly stressful dreams. Uh, my now fiance was with me at the time and I was, I was literally waking up feeling like I was drowning and I was like, you know, oh, maybe man. this isn't, maybe this isn't, uh, <laughs> maybe this isn't an enjoyable experience. So, uh, and that's when obviously sheer panic hit and you, you find yourself real quick when you hit full blown panic because it's like, you know, I put three years into this. What do I, because if I choose anything else now, I'm going to be four years behind everybody else in that chosen field. And not only am I four years behind, I'm four years behind of basically education-backed experience for their chosen career. So that was terrifying, but that also kind of instilled in me that I have to make up for lost time. Hmm. Interesting. So I'm, I'm just thinking because that is a, a pretty significant change. I'm sure like the MCAT in and of itself, you've said you've taken that several times. I mean, those are like really, really big decisions. When you made that decision, how did you specifically choose business? And then how did you specifically choose tech as a subset or maybe a primary driver of that as opposed to, we'll just say law or as opposed to, you know, accounting or something? So I chose business mostly because I liked buying and selling magic cards when I was at college. And I had Mm. a spreadsheet of like, all right, I'm keeping tabs. If I have this, I bought it for this. This is what I'm doing. I was always, I mean, this is the organization element. Like I was very structured in what I was was doing. And I was like, I think I'm actually pretty good at this. And I actually enjoyed keeping track of that. I was not good at it. And I wasn't doing it in any like strong capacity, but I was like, I actually enjoyed doing this. So maybe I can translate this to more of a, like a more legitimate business front. Mm-hmm. I had no idea I wanted to do more of the coding and tech until I got to my master's program and there was one professor and I always love the professors who are still working as opposed to the tenured. He was still working and he's like, look, if you want to get a job, this is what you need to know and this is how you need to do it. And I'm going to show you that. Or I'm going to basically give you the roadmap to get there, but you've got to put the work in, which thoroughly appealed to me. And, and what was your what was your uh, area of study for graduate school? Uh, data analytics. Okay. So, but that has a lot of broad, I mean, you could end up a financial analyst, you could end up business intelligence, you could end up a database administrator. There, there's a lot of different avenues to take. Hmm. But basically, and this is why I know R really well, because it's the academics language. Um, <laughs> but the projects that he gave me are basically like, all right, let's look at um, soccer players and predict how they're going to go into next year. Let's look at, let's look at this data set of like, and these were like real world from websites that he had gathered or or obviously that was later on and initially it was just like pre-made templates but like the questions that were being asked and to answer i was like this this is really cool this is really interesting it made me very happy that i kind of tripped into it kind of made the panic worth it for me because i definitely know now i'm where i should be i definitely enjoy doing what i'm doing now far more than i would have ever been doing anything else 
So really thinking back, a lot of happy accidents tripping into the right place, finding the right teacher at the right time, just kind of all lining up to, to get me into data science. No, absolutely. What, what was your initial gut reaction? I always like to ask this question. When you were assigned to learn R, right, when you open it up uh, and you're like, okay, hey, we're going to type some, some code. I mean, being that you were in a master's degree program uh, in graduate school, I'm sure it's a bit different, but I always, everyone I talk to always feels like some sense of terror or scared or, or feel very quickly overwhelmed. Was that, what was your gut reaction just initially? Oh, yeah. So uh, my brother's actually a software engineer, and he's been coding since I was eight and he was 12. He would literally get the, the For Dummies books for like C++ for Christmas. Uh, and he had always tried to get me into coding. And I was like, no, no, I'm not a coder. I hate it's It's too specific. It's too like you need to be too perfect with everything. And that would drive me nuts. So when I first had to learn it, I spent four hours trying to read a CSV document, and I was about ready to chuck my laptop out of the room. <laughs> the saving grace was, again, that professor, he literally said he, he loves Zoom. He's like, if you ever hit like a roadblock, call me right away, and, and I'll help you get you past it. But me being like, I can do this. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm in mess. I should be able to do this. I waited four hours before I called him. He's just like, he fixed it. He literally took control of my computer and was like, all right, fix this typo, fix this here, and there you go. And like, that was the length of the call. And I was so frustrated that it was so easy to fix. And it was yeah. such minor, like, minor things that I, I hated it. And I, I hated coding until I saw the end result of what came out of it. And then I was like, I want to I wanna do that. And I'm willing to accept this part of it to get to that. <laughs> no, I, I think when it comes to any technical field, mentorship is is probably i mean you, you need to have some amount of drive focus uh you know determination to just be able to sit and work for you know hours and hours upon for hours and hours at a time but mentorship in those fields whether it comes from a professor or an older sibling or you know a friend in the industry it, it's been my experience that it is probably the most important thing that you can have i guess looking back to graduate school and this is a little bit different because your undergrad degree was in a different field from graduate school. How would you describe your overall experience? And as a question I always like to ask people who have gone to graduate, graduate schools, do you think it was worth it? I think I already know your answer, but do you think that the decision, <laughs> the, the, the cost of education, or maybe the time out of the market was worth your time? So for me, in my specific instance, because my undergrad was in the wrong thing, Yes, absolutely. If you get it right the first time, like so many things in life, hell no. <laughs> Most of the people who, um, because in my program too, there were there were quite a few um, folks who had come over from uh, India or China who'd actually had five to 10 years working experience. And I learned about as much of, if not more, just from my interactions with them than I did from the classes in that we're, you're never going to do this in the real world. Or yeah, you're going to do this, but we're, we're learning it in a weird uh, angle or we're doing it something like this. This is how I actually did it in the workplace. So learning from the people who already had experience and then not only that, but the people who had taken it as an undergrad or who had actually, honestly, you could probably do what I do if you were thoroughly motivated with three years of self-education. The only thing against that is when you apply for jobs, people say minimum requirement, bachelor's degree. And I think the real value from degrees like a master's is 
you're literally just walking down the beach, pointing, like planting your flag in the sand saying, this is how far I'm willing to go. But you don't have to, you don't need the master's or the graduate degree to get there. Hard work and just a solid GitHub presentation, like repos, will, will get you there just, to, just as well. It's just for, so for the specific path that I chose, yes, it was worth it. For most people, when they ask me, if they give me a little bit of background, and they're like, I've been doing this for four years, does it make sense? It's like, yes and no. I mean, if you're doing it as night classes, just as something to kind of fill your time and you, you're you getting it affordably, sure, it can definitely, the letters after your name look good. But I think more often than not, you, you could probably spend your time more productively after you have base education and you know the correct questions to ask on your own. At whatever point in your education you are, you can stop there and and continue learning affordably on your own time. Yeah, and I think that's the, you know, it's interesting because I actually don't run into too many people who have completely cross industries, which is why I find your story so interesting because you have like a night and day, you know, background (laughs) with regards to your um, area of expertise, which isn't negative at all. And I I don't, you know, hope to, I'm not not saying that, but like, oh, it's a truth. If (laughs) if anything, I actually find you to be a far more interesting candidate than someone who's just done, you know, undergrad in this field. And then they went to get the master, went and got the master's just because you have a different perspective on things. Do you think your experience in your undergraduate program has given you a different perspective on how you approach technology today? My experience in my undergraduate program? Even just thinking or framework. And I mean, it could be no, but when you think about classical language or you think about problem solving or, or. And, and maybe that's like oh, yeah. a very high level question, but you know, just out of curiosity. See, again, see, my mind went straight to the biology element. The moment you mentioned classical languages, my mind was like, oh, absolutely. Because when, when I translate something out of like ancient Latin or Greek, you can get the literal words down and you can have a sentence strung up. But obviously there are words now that exist that didn't exist back then. There were innuendos and jokes in the context, obviously in ancient times that are not here now. So you can have literal information in front of you but your your interpretation of it, you've got to understand, is going to be different, biased, skewed. It's always going to be, and you can never be sure if you've got it right, which is beautiful and terrifying, which is awesome. But now I think it's the same thing when I look at data. I can see, I was just discussing this uh, actually with Grapeshot before this. I can look at this data and see, yes, there's demand here, but I can't tell you who it is or why it's happening. I could say, I, I think this is speculators or I think it's this. And that to me was one of the biggest transfers from that experience. And like, you can, you can be right to the letter of the law and still be wrong. And understanding that and, and being wary of it and also appreciative of it is definitely something that classical languages just that that experience and by the way i wasn't very good at doing uh, ancient ancient greek i was decent at latin but ancient greek i was not very good at but just <laughs> that that transfer of skills and uh, and just kind of interpreting what's in front of you i do think was very invaluable awesome man i, I i'm always interested in people who have skills that are not necessarily as common right because i would consider just like your profile your candidacy as someone who I, w- I would want to work with, or if you're an employer would want to hire, I, I always just find those perspectives to be very interesting because they're uncommon, right? Yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna find too many people with a similar resume to me for both good and bad reasons. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of resume, so you finish school, and I know a little bit about this, but your side projects, right? We talked you talked a little bit about Magic the Gathering. You're you know kind of flipping cards and kind of approaching that. 
When did you start exploring the programmatic side of TCG Player and, and or just, I guess, of NTG Finance as a whole? Yeah, mm-hmm. so let's just start there. Yeah, when, when did you encompass that? So this kind of ties in with why I actually got really good with R was because as I was doing those projects for that professor, he was asking, the questions he was asking, I was like, I could ask this for my magic collection. And like, so obviously when I came out of undergrad, I had no real skill set, which meant that I was trying to apply for jobs that I didn't even know really what the job description was. I just thought, you know, it ties in with business. What could go wrong? And like (laughs) one of those things was, okay, if you want to be an analyst and like, dear Lord, uh, you could be, you, if you want to be an analyst, you should know this at the age of 17, uh, not trying to knock anybody who doesn't have it, but dear Lord, you need it. VLOOKUPs. If you apply to a job for an analyst and you don't know how to do a VLOOKUP in Excel, go watch a 20-minute YouTube video, come back, and you will find yourself ready to apply for a ton of jobs. And then you get a little bit better with Index Match. But what I was doing, what I started doing kind of in February of 2018 was I sold a lot of my Magic collection because I wanted to get uh, a Dachshund. My fiance loves Dachshund. She grew up with it. So for Christmas, we got Dachshund. And I sold a lot of my EDH decks. I think I had three, I had four at the time, and I sold three of them to pay for the dog. And that, for me, was a time where I was like, wow, these cardboard cards are really worth a lot of money, and I've just had them sitting here. And so I started creating a spreadsheet. And the first thing that I wanted to do was, what is the retail price, and what is the buy list price of these cards? And there were services out there that exist, and they still exist. But I was never happy with them. I, I always felt like that pricing structure or how you're measuring market price, I don't, I don't like it. It's not real. It's not useful. Uh, I don't know how to say that in a better way. I apologize. But it was just <laughs> like, I, I wanted something that this is what my card is worth today. Can I move it? And the moment I kind of switched into that mentality was the moment that I said, I don't care about market price. I want buy list price. I want that updated every day in my spreadsheet so I can see... If I need to sell my cards for an emergency, like for me, it was like my dog needs to be fixed. All right, I need to pay for that. That money's going to be coming out of my magic cards. I want to know the best time to sell my magic cards to pay for that. So I need to learn the methodology. And the surefire thing that I knew, especially after selling my cards for my dogs, was that market price wasn't real for me. I was not a seller and knowing the the market price was useless. So I needed to know what the buy list value of my collection is. So I knew if all hell was breaking loose, this is what I could sell it for and get it. But also if I tracked it over time, I could see the best time to sell. So I don't just panic sell one night because I need to pay for something. I can say, all right, I'll sell 20% this day, 20% this day, 20% this day, and maximize my gains. Can you tell that I'm slowly leaking into a finance bit? (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't, I didn't even realize it while I was doing it. It was just like, this just makes sense. Obviously, this is what you do. So then I found out, and anybody can do this. I'll send this formula to anybody. There is a way, if you use Google Sheets, wherein you can get MTG Goldfish pricing directly into your spreadsheet to update every time you go to your spreadsheet. It's called Import HTML. And that was my onset into web scraping, was basically, look, a website is written in HTML code. They're presenting that information to you. You can grab that, and you can grab it in a lot of different ways. And once you have it, the the world's the limit. And that was like me meandering into like how I started off kind of using Excel and Google Sheets, and then 
once I got into R and I found more efficient ways to gather it and realized that I could do things without crashing Excel 25 times a day, that was like, that was like a huge stepping stone for me. When you got to that point, when did you decide to take on, I guess, the persona of Wolf of Tint Street or realize that, okay, this is, this is a little bit more than a hobby. I, I, I enjoy doing this and I kind of want to start my Twitter identity and start the business and go on with that. So when I got into MTG Finance, I did a lot of, I guess, what I would say was the mainstream ways of doing it. Listening to the, the folks on Twitter and the, and the, and the folks who, who write MTG articles about how to do MTG finance, uh, and especially now looking back, and at the time I kind of had the, uh, had this feeling that it was the case, but definitely now with experience, the people writing these MTG finance articles do not have a finance background; they have a player background, and there is there is a huge difference. And this is why, for me, like when I sold my cards and I was like, buy list is all that matters. Why is everyone tracking the market price and the retail value of these cards instead of the buy list price? Because that's actually the value of your cards. And kind of as soon as I saw that nobody was tracking buy list values anywhere, I thought this is something that really needs to be done. This is really useful. What is the backing of the card? Uh, and obviously it gets complicated when you're looking at a buy list, but that's the true value of the card. And if nobody in MTG Finance is really looking at that and appreciating the actual value of having that backing, I think it deserves more limelight than it's getting. And especially as I, I just kind of got better at selling cards, although I'll be honest with you, there are plenty of folks who are better than me already uh, when we started at the same time, because selling and the data side still are not a perfect mesh. There's a lot of different stuff that goes into it, but just that realization that really that the buy list price was so underappreciated and that it was so easy to gather if you just thought to look for it and, and understand and then you begin to understand its relationships with the market price and the retail value. For me, it really just became a really fun way to learn finance and to piggyback using MTG, which was a card game I really enjoyed playing through undergrad, into an appreciable skill set that I can now, I have it on my resume to my GitHub repo. Like I, mm -hmm. I bend this knowledge and, and this exercise. And I think it's very rare to find a hobby that is not only fun to do, but improves your skill set at the same time in a lot of areas. And I'm constantly meeting people through this, either through the tech or the sales side who are already here, who like see what I'm doing. They're like, oh yeah, that's, that's really cool. Can I give you this idea? Can I give you this idea? And that to me is like, I'm basically learning through osmosis, which is the perfect place to be. The next question I have is one that I really hate when people ask me, but I think <laughs> it's really interesting. Do you want to be a tech person or a business person? I definitely enjoy the tech side of it better. Okay. Uh, handling, the, handling the data is uh, a lot more fun to me than... And there's a very clear reason for this. Fun fact, I've actually, uh, I'm one of 50 people who's been CC'd on an email to, to John Finkel, so I feel cool. But <laughs> when when you get into the finance element of things and the business side of things, you, you enter into that realm of interpreting. And when you start interpreting things, you're going to get things wrong. And when you get things wrong, you are answerable to somebody. That's just how it works. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's how it should work. But I enjoy my profession, and one of the main reasons why I'm glad I didn't go into medicine was that I like to put on my soundproof headphones, be me, choose who I interact with, and choose who I don't interact with, 
willy-nilly. When you enter that, that business element where you have to interpret something for somebody else, you have to interact with people more often, uh, which is not a me thing. And when you get things wrong, and obviously you're always accountable to somebody, but uh, I, I prefer to limit my interactions with people as much as possible. Hey, at the end of the day, I am a magic player. Um, so <laughs> for me, when you, when you hand me a bunch of data, I can spend six to eight hours just going through like, Ooh, what's this? Ooh, what's this? Something shiny, pull this over. And that to me, especially recently, I've really realized is the element that I, I need to keep first and foremost in, in my, in what I'm doing for this hobby. Otherwise it, be, it really begins to feel more like a chore to me. And it's the same thing at work. The more I'm on calls with people trying to translate graphs or be as neutral as possible so they don't put money where they're not uh, so I don't reveal too much I start playing a different game that I feel I fit into so to speak mm -hmm. so I'll ask you two things and feel free to share as much information as you want where do you see yourself as far as your career as a data scientist is someone who, who is living in the day-to-day, -day, pardon me, who's interacting and, and being technical on a day-to-day -day basis. Where do you see that aspect of yourself a year from now? And then again, where do you see your career or where do you imagine to see your career five years from now? I feel like I'm in an, uh, a job interview now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, well, a year from now, I need to be I need to be a hell of a lot more proficient in a couple coding languages. So I've learned one and I've learned it very well. Uh, it is not the mainstream and it is not oftentimes the optimal language. So I think the good analogy is trying to stick a square peg in a round hole. You can do it if you try hard enough. There are often easier ways to do it. Um, and you alluded to this earlier, learning a new coding language for me after I've learned one so well, it's the same trepidation and kind of pullback from when I first learned R. But just kind of getting over that and forcing myself, again, this comes back to, again, organization, regimented structure. This is when I'm waking up. I have to do this X amount of coursework and also falling back. I could have never done this as a 17-year-old. I needed to grow up. So I'm very glad I'm here and I'm doing it now. But then in a year from now, I definitely want to kind of earn the title that I've kind of been honorarily given uh, a little bit more, which requires me putting in that work. And then I think further down the line, obviously, I am getting married in 139 days if my fiance's website ticker is correct um so thanks that is definitely first and foremost on my mind of just providing and having that financial background and essentially once i heard a certain salary threshold it's going to be more just going wherever is optimal for not my personal benefit anymore but a, a collective group mm -hmm. so seattle right <laughs> i really like i would love it man <laughs> I just know I got to get out of New York City. I am not a city person, weird <laughs> as that is. But, you know, and the reason I ask that is, do you believe that you want to be, I mean, and, and granted, this, we are fluid humans, I think mm -hmm. things are ever changing, but is your current plan for me the next 10 years to be like a principal research scientist or to just be as, as technical as you possibly can? Or on the other side of that, of, of kind of the side business and some of the other things that I know you do? Are you also are you looking to build the TCG set just business your side business as its own large entity to you know handle that as your main job? So, and they don't need to be mutually exclusive, but I, I just think we only have twenty four hours in a day, right? Yeah. 
There's a very cold and calculated answer for this, and that is where's the money? Yeah. Because I, I have to follow the money. Now, if the side hobby through whatever, you know, I accidentally tripped into the right career, great. If now, if the side hobby accidentally trips into being a profitable career, hell yeah, I would love that. That said, the application of my skill set is far more profitable in other areas. Uh, and so long as uh, obviously that remains that way, uh, I'm definitely going to be leaning more and more into the, the technical side for for real work, essentially. and if the TCG side of things continues to kind of help me refine that, continues to help me find, basically, as long as it's still healthy for me and uh, I'm still able to give back in a way that I, I would like to give back in, I'm absolutely down to continue doing this. And uh, honestly, right now, things are growing. Things are going well on all fronts, but, uh, you know, don't blink. Uh, so and don't <laughs> jinx it. <laughs> I haven't really had to choose yet, but I know if push came to shove, especially right now, just where I'm positioned in life, you know, you've got to go with the tech side of things, I think. And being that, that research analyst, being that, that data science element, for me, you can hand me any data set. And as long as I have a little bit of context, I will have fun with it, <laughs> which is really nice. The fact that TCG is just something that I am so deep into and I fully understand the context makes it so that every time I want to learn something new, I have a fun playground to do. I don't think that's ever going to go away. But in terms of the the business element in front of that MTG side of things, the TCG element, that could honestly go away tomorrow, that could stay. That is honestly just to fill my time as like my fun hobby. So for right now, obviously, I think it's a pretty clear cut equation. But uh, again, we'll we'll see how that goes in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And again, right, we are we are fluid, evolving humans. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, you know, if, if, if you were to hit a half a million or a million dollars in sales, then these answers kind of change. <laughs> yeah, but it does kind of boil down to, and this is why, again, I was mentioning raising my, my card price to $10. I am really, for the first time, and I think this happens to everybody eventually, whether it's from finance, family, whatever, I'm valuing my time greater than actual profits or, or, or I guess time spent elsewhere. So that is a, and that's something that I don't think you can really fully ever calculate, which I don't like, <laughs> but it just is what it is. So having to kind of bob and weave with that kind of new dark horse element is, is probably the most challenging thing for me. Do you see yourself ever pursuing another degree? Going to going back to school for to finish a PhD or postgraduate oh, education. Oh, I absolutely could, absolutely could. But it, again, it would, the conditions would have to be right for that because, as I kind of alluded to earlier, getting those degrees first and foremost, it's oftentimes more profitable to just stay in the the workforce and get your CFA, get your C, get get something like that that's directly applicable and and you're good to go. Uh, getting a PhD takes a lot of is a lot of time and effort and oftentimes the monetary reward for doing so isn't there. Again, that said, would it be a lot of fun to do? Absolutely. But that's at this point, weirdly enough, that's more of a selfish goal for me, given again my current settings. So that one would definitely have to be played by ear, but I would totally love to do it. But again, and then furthermore, uh, on the next downside of that, when you get a PhD, you have to really specialize because the moment you realize you know something, you're going to realize that everybody else knows something a lot better than you do. And if you get a PhD, I think to make it worth it, you've really got to specialize down on something. 
Uh, and I can tell you right now, I would do time series in a heartbeat. But that is that is a question for a more mature me in a different setting. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I want to quickly touch on kind of your magic career. You said you had originally played in college. When were you? When was your first introduction to magic? My first introduction to magic was actually in high school. I had a friend. He's the one who got me into league. We'd play on the oh, gym yeah. floor, but that was. That was a relentless rat's deck. That was a um, <laughs> um, that was a cruel gore rampager deck. That was basically like I popped it out of the box, shuffled it without sleeves, and played it on the gym floor. I didn't really ever go to F and M's through that period, though. That was just like something I threw together. I thought paying more than five dollars for a card was outrageous. Only who would ever do this? Until I got to college, and the guy down the hallway from me. He's like, oh, you play Magic. It was kind of like that open orientation night, so everyone's awkward as hell. Uh, so he decided that, he was like, all right, well, let's let's play decks. So he pulled out Eldrazi Tron against my Relentless Rats deck and kicked the ever-loving crap out of me. And he's like, no, 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 don't worry, I've got another deck. I was like, oh, sweet. He pulls out Sliver Tribal Legacy, proceeds to wipe the floor with me. But of course, I'm an 18-year-old dude, I'm very competitive. I was like, oh, well, I, can, I, can I try your deck? So I started playing with his deck, and he's like, you know, we can go to, there was an LGS in Omaha, like a 10 minute drive from the university. So it was like, yeah, I would love to do that. And there was eventually like five or six of us on that that floor. And that was kind of like my friend group all through undergraduate college. So we would like every Friday, we would, <laughs> we would jump in a 1983 Chevy that was still held together by the grace of God. We actually ran out of gas one time because the gas, the gas tracker was broken. And <laughs> we didn't know that. Just uh, we ran out of gas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right you literally had to keep track of like the google route and how many miles you've driven because yeah fuck. That feels about right <laughs> that was cool. uh yeah. yeah every friday five or six of us whoever could obviously make it that weekend you know relationships and of course being 18 whatever whatever schedule is allowed you would try and make it every friday and that was kind of like what everyone gathered around so for me that was really my quote-unquote playing career was just going kind of brewing decks, just trying to like play with everybody, trying to gauge the meta, trying to get into it and just having fun. Right on, man. Do you ever think back to those times? Like when you're when you're riffling through cards now and you're trying to find, you know, whether, whether it's flipping cards that have high activity and you're identifying them in the newspaper, pardon me, newspaper, newspaper, or you are looking at spoilers and stuff. I find myself always thinking back. My card kind of during that time was like Vampire Nighthawk. I remember in my like casual playgroup, Vampire Nighthawk was like, this card's broken, man. Death touch and flying and lifelink. Mm -hmm. Just out of curiosity, do you ever find yourself kind of reminiscing about that stage of your magic career? Because I find that we can't get it back. Like you can't appreciate the artwork. You can't appreciate comments yeah. and uncomments in the same way anymore. And you can say no. I I'm just genuinely curious. No, I totally agree. I mean, so like my first Planeswalker was Domri Raid, and I definitely, I don't think the card's any good, but I love it because, I mean, I cracked a, what is the Minotaur that deals damage that you, uh, when it's dealt damage, it deals that much to the Boros player. Reckoner. Yes, Boros Reckoner. I mean, that was a $10 card. So yeah, I pulled that, that yeah. and the guy across from me pulled Domri Raid, and I'd never had a Planeswalker before, and just given the meta, like that was my first quote-unquote like magic trade. So I definitely have the affinity to Domri. And then oddly enough, when I started playing FNM, my first like pre-release or, or event was for Theros. So it was Xenoghost, the Reveler. 
like those cards and that artwork. Uh, I think my first night, too, for Theros, I cracked a foil Elspeth, which was like a $70 card at the time when all my friends were like, ah! <laughs> so um, they're like, of course the rookie gets it. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, there's uh, there's definite, definite nostalgia when I think back on it and just having fun brewing with those decks. I mean, the staying up till 2 a.m., playing uh, a Momer Vig deck, never, I force of will to Birds of Paradise, I'll have you know. <laughs> it, like, staying up till 2 a.m., just like, just like oh, let's play another one, let's play another one, let's play another one. I don't think that's ever gonna, ever gonna come back for me, but definitely look back very fondly. Wrapping up, I think we've we covered some education, covered your professional stuff. For people who are listening that are either interested in learning tech or aspiring data scientists or, or even aspiring MTG financiers, what's one or two key pieces of advice that you would give to your younger self? Start small. Start very small. This is, again, I think universal advice, but pick a very small project and pick something that you want to do. If you try and learn code, the first thing that they're going to do is they're going to have you print hello, and then they're going to have you like print a string together, and they're going to do all of these very formatted approaches of entry, uh, which I don't want to knock. Obviously, that, that's a standard for a reason. That That is a very rounded way of entering. But I always try and tell people, pick a project, pick something that you want to know. And it doesn't matter if it's already been done and if somebody else is already providing it. Pick a project that you are interested in that you want to do and, and work towards it. And once you get it, the next project you do, you'll realize I can borrow 25% of my last project into this. And then the next project, you can borrow 35%. And you, you'll, you'll be able to string together projects that interest you. And I think that's really the way that you learn. It has to be, it has to be enticing for you to do. And if you, know, if you start and you realize it's not for you, that's fine. But I think that's just true with anything in life. You've got to, it's got to interest you and you've got to start small and then make sure it's not cheating if you steal from yourself. Make sure you build off of your prior work and you can really stepping stone yourself into something nice. Well, right on, man. Is there anything else that you want to share with the audience about yourself or about you know, any career information? Obviously, we, we talk about so many different things on a weekly basis, but uh, just wrapping up here, any additional information, something that is, what is something about yourself that we don't know what is like a very unique thing that is specific to chris outside of this outside of magic outside of tech any funky foods or, or anything like that oh yeah i absolutely love jalapenos and i thought they were the weirdest dogs until i owned them but dachshunds forever man <laughs> uh, there i grew up with big dogs always constantly big macho dogs i will never have a dog over 15 pounds again and i love these things Right I feel like a villain because I constantly, I always have my oldest one, Ruby, on my lap, like right now. And I feel like Giovanni from Pokemon all the time. <laughs> it's amazing. I love it. Well, awesome. Well, thanks, Chris, for sitting down with us. Well, I guess sitting down with me. I don't know about us, but yeah. <laughs> Share it on the cast. I'm excited uh, that I was able to learn something about you, and I'm sure our audience was as well. We're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to do you next week because uh, I feel very weird being barely 25 and having to do a, a biopic so we're gonna have to get somebody with a little <laughs> bit more experience sure well uh, I, I don't think there's much more stuff about me i think it'll be about the same but yeah no problem and then to wrap up as always what are you what are you doing outside the hobby anything interesting this week father's day i found a really cool site called pop chart which is like a bunch of posters on uh, like blueprints and stuff that 
I was able to get my father a really cool uh, like depiction of like spacecrafts through time. Just really cool posters. I got uh, as so often happens. I went for him and ended up getting two things for myself. Um, <laughs> I got a nice one, which is like I love. I'm weird, I guess. For my, I love scotch. I, I love like the history, the stories, and everything behind it. So I got a really cool one with like the different posters behind it, and been kind of loading up on different different scotches and, and bourbons to to try and entice other people around me into the hobby. So. Twenty-five-year-old uh, who drinks scotch. <laughs> Dude, I play magic. That if that's not proof that when I pick an ex- a hobby, it's going to be expensive. That's true. It's true. You're going to get into Patek watches next, but yeah. <laughs> oh, dude, you mentioned Montblanc pens, dude. I got moleskins. We're we're on our way, man. There this you is go. Make sure my bank account is always near zero. <laughs> uh, what am I doing outside the hobby? I'm trying to go fishing this week. Hopefully, if I can get my work done earlier uh, i want to just so we're we're in salmon season and i want to make it my goal if i don't get it now i'll have to wait until the fall but one of my 2020 goals is to to catch a, a nice salmon in the puget sound which will be pretty cool you go fishing a lot man you gotta enjoy that well i i used to a lot i haven't been for like five years but 2020 or one of my goals for myself when we uh, went into when COVID had started, I was like, I need to find an activity that I can do socially distant and fishing fit that profile. And there is something just to be said, just getting away from your screen, getting away from, from the computer and everything. And I'll just go sit on the dock, pop in some podcasts and just chill out for a couple hours. Somebody who's had to go to sleep with two carpal tunnel braces on both of his hands. I can thoroughly relate to that. Oh man. <laughs> well, all right. And on top of that, anything you're reading? Uh, <laughs> uh, I laughed at my own joke. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm easy to please, clearly. Um, but uh, the TCG fee structure is really what I've been reading uh, because I've been applying that to all my spreadsheets and writing very, not convoluted, but long if statements to, to account for all of that. So unfortunately, I have not been reading anything for fun outside of reading Warbreaker, again, by Brandon Sanderson for my company's book club. But I've already read it, so that's cheating. Well, nice. I'm still working on the same two books I've been working on for a month. <laughs> I'm working end soon. At some point this year, I'll get through meditations. But anyway, that, that's a conversation for a different There's day. not enough time in the day, man. There is <laughs> <There's> not. not. <laughs> so thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Spec and Collect podcast. Once again, you can find this on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts on almost, I believe, all audio platforms. If you want to reach out to us, you can do that through Twitter. You can also find me under Merfolk Magic on Twitter and YouTube. And if you want to talk to Wolf, where can the people find you? You guys can find me on Twitter or Discord under Wolf of Tin Street Tag. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I hope you were, I hope the listeners were able to learn something about us. This is a weekly podcast. I really enjoy doing it. Uh, so yeah, I'll be up next week. I think your story is really interesting. And I think there are many people in the hobby that you know probably have similar interests and similar lives outside of... Uh, magic so thanks so much for sitting down and kind of sharing that today anytime all right well anyway thanks so much for listening guys and we'll see you next week